Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Richard Cockett, the British business editor, and you're listening to Money Talks. And on this show... So there'll be no second referendum, no attempt to turn the clock back. Their first priority would be to renegotiate terms of trade with the economic unit that they sell half of their goods to. We give our post-G20 analysis. Of course, the Brexit that Japan and America and others want to see is a very, very soft one. Uber has mega ambitions. It will be their greatest technological feat if they pull it off, but it is a very long road ahead. We're talking probably 10 years away. And how companies can get the most out of introverts. Introverts can actually train themselves to do the sort of things that extroverts do, which is to get out there to motivate people. First, though, the G20 summit came to a close yesterday in Hangzhou, China. Though it began controversially on the runway after plane stairs and red carpet fanfare failed to materialise for President Obama at the airport, leaders were able to put aside their differences to agree on measures for reviving the global economy. Simon Rabinovich, our Asia economics editor, who just returned from Hangzhou, is on the line with me now. So, Simon, what was finally agreed at the end of the two-day summit? A lot of different issues were talked about. Uh, As you were right to introduce, uh, one of the big focuses was uh, how to fuel more global growth. The concern is that nearly a decade on from the global financial crisis, the, the global economy is still running well below where it was prior to the crisis, so more is needed in terms of Uh, fiscal policy, monetary policy, structural reform. Beyond that, there was uh, a lot of discussion about coordination on tax policies uh, and and a focus that China really uh, wanted to emphasize, which was how countries could promote more innovation, how they could cooperate on innovation, and how to ensure that uh, developing countries wouldn't be left behind. China's overproduction of steel was the sort of elephant in the room. Was there any sign that the country would scale back its steel production or, or take other measures? That's right. So, I mean, one of the big concerns going into the G20 uh, was not just Chinese overcapacity, but more broadly concerns about uh, globalization and, and the feeling that there's been a big backlash, especially in the developed world, to globalization that we've seen in, in Europe with Brexit, in America with the rise of Trump. Uh, And so then one specific concern coming out of that was this idea that uh, China, of course, has been generating a lot of cheap exports, specifically uh, in the steel sector. uh, And this is something that's been a big concern uh, in Europe and in America as well. This was one of the things they wanted to see movement from China on. Uh, China, of course, pushed back, as you would expect, and it said that, you know, one of the concerns that China has is that global demand is too weak. And so it was trying to basically throw the ball back into the American and European court. In the end, there was effectively an agreement to disagree. They've established a form that will look at uh, overcapacity in the steel sector that will meet next year. 
China has made some small pledges to cut steel capacity, but this is a discussion that will roll on and continue well into next year. As these things do. And finally, um, I wanted to talk Brexit. Theresa May, Britain's new Prime Minister, seemed to get a rather hard time at the G20, at least that's what it looked like from here in London. Several leaders, President Obama, Japan, Korea, made it quite clear that they had deep worries about Brexit and how it might be conducted. Take Japan for a start. Japan threatened to pull its banks and car makers out of the UK if a country failed to negotiate favourable terms on trade tariffs and free movement with Europe. How serious was this threat from Japan? In some ways, it's a restatement of concerns that we've heard about Brexit from from day one. But effectively, what Japan is saying is that they want to see a, a soft Brexit. Uh, but when you look at the kinds of demands that they are effectively placing on Britain, it's to maintain the status quo, uh, which, of course, is not what at least a lot of Brexit voters thought they were voting for. So it does put Theresa May in, in an awkward position. Uh, and, of course, she's had this line that we've heard multiple times that Brexit means Brexit. But, uh, of course, the Brexit that Japan and America and others want to see is a very, very soft one. There clearly is a marker that has been put down, a warning that has been stated, uh, which is that if there is to be a harder Brexit, Uh, If uh, Japanese banks, American banks, uh, will no longer have the single European uh, market access with the passport, then they will look to move their headquarters uh, outside of Britain. So that clearly is a threat that will have to be taken into consideration. Simon Rabinovich, thank you very much. Thank you. Next, we shift gears and look at Uber, the ride-hailing service and the world's most valuable startup, now worth about 70 billion US dollars. It has ambitions to expand its business even further into the world of autonomous cars. But can Uber compete with the tech giants and car companies with similar ambitions to dominate the multi-trillion dollar personal transport market? Alexandra Switch, our US technology editor, who has been looking into this story, joins me on the line now from San Francisco. Alexandra, let's start first with the details of Uber's plans to expand into the electric, self-driving car sector. You spoke to Travis Kalanick, the company's co-founder and boss. What did he tell you about their ambitions? Uber is, on September 14th, going to do something that's very interesting. They're going to start a pilot where Uber users, um, in the past you've been able to use their smartphone app to hail rides to different places um, that you're going. They are going to launch an autonomous car feature where you can actually hail an autonomous car. This goes into their larger efforts, which are to accelerate their investment in self-driving car technology. They want to be among the first players to get there. They have a lot of competition, which we can talk about, but they're very interested in autonomous cars because their current business model is that they take a cut of the fare and give the rest to a driver. If they're able to take the entire fare and don't need to worry about the labor issues and splitting the fare, they then get all of it. And in an autonomous world, they'd also be able to lower their prices, which is extremely attractive to them because the lower prices go, the more people might consider using Uber instead of renting a car or traveling in a different way. Right. But as you point out, this is going to be quite a step for for Uber. Um, It's a company whose business model has been dependent on human drivers. So how's it going to compete in a world with autonomous cars, a very, very different technology? 
So I would say first that I think this is a statement of ambition. It's not a sign that the future is immediately here. So this is a handful of cars in Pittsburgh that will be part of this pilot. Most people will still be chauffeured by drivers. They're working a lot right now on the software side. So their plan is not to manufacture a car. They're going to in the future work with car companies um, who will manufacture it. They're really perfecting the mapping technology, which they want to do on their own. They don't want to be reliant on other players like Google, who might ultimately launch a service, uh, a mobility service to rival Uber. So they want to create their own mapping. And then they really need to work with sensors on the road to understand kind of how a car will be able to travel safely in all conditions and get a passenger where they need to go. It is an enormous challenge, but you know, it will be their greatest technological feat if they pull it off. But it is a very long road ahead. We're talking probably 10 years away. Now, what chance, I wonder, does um, Uber have of pulling this off? We've seen with companies, especially tech companies in the past, failing to keep up with the trends that they helped to pioneer. Uh, Witness Nokia in the mobile handset market, BlackBerry or MySpace falling behind um, the social networking sites. How will Uber stay on top? How will Uber keep its edge? You're exactly right. A lot changes in the technology industry, but one of the truths across different generations of technology is that often the pioneer does not stick around to monopolize the profits later. Uber is betting that it has the potential to disrupt an enormous market. So if we just look at the taxi industry, it's perhaps $100 billion dollars. Uber is after the personal mobility industry, and that's potentially $10 trillion a year. The question is, will they successfully be able to fend off other companies? And already, by raising so much money and speaking to people about how large this opportunity is, they've attracted a lot of other investors and companies looking at this space. So they they now have very well-funded rivals. And then, of course, there's going to be new competition. Companies like Google um, and then automakers themselves are going to try and push into this space. How successfully they do it uh, is another question, but what's certain in the medium term is that Uber is not going to have this market to itself. Yeah, because as you say, they've already, they've struggled in some markets. China, for instance, where they've had difficulties and also India, another potential huge market for them where their competitors have been successful. So do we expect them to do better in the places where they haven't been so successful so far? The China story is a really interesting one. Uber observed that the mistake that its predecessors, its digital predecessors made was not trying hard enough and early enough in China and giving away the prize. So Amazon is an example. Google, Facebook, no Western digital company had successfully cracked the Chinese market. So they tried and they threw probably in total around you know, three to four billion dollars at the opportunity. It's an enormous one because car ownership is very low in China. So if they hook passengers early enough, they could potentially have them for life. They had an extremely nimble competitor in Didi. And of course, the government did not want a Western company, I think, to succeed. So Uber recently negotiated a truce of sorts. They they merged their Chinese operations with Didi. I think the Chinese market is a really unique one. I don't think that they'll see similar protectionism in 
India, say, or Latin America, the playing ground is a little bit more level. But the real question for Uber is, it's seen a tremendous amount of growth so far, and it has a really large opportunity in major urban centers. But right now, it's 20 cities that account for the bulk of Uber's revenues. So are there enough big cities that are still on offer for Uber to continue its current trajectory of growth? And major markets like Germany, Italy, Spain are out of reach right now because of regulation. And they also have to keep their margins high. But in a self-driving world, autonomous cars, um, Uber might have to own these driverless cars. And that's going to be very different to the asset light model of ride hailing that they have at the moment. So lastly, looking forward, if they really move into the autonomous driving era, that could be a big transformation for the whole company. It could look very different in 20 years time if, as you say, they manage to get a big slice of this multi-trillion market of transport. That's right. So as you point out, I mean, there's a really interesting question, which is even if they get their way, even if they are the first company to pioneer autonomous vehicles, or maybe the second, a close second, what does their business model look like? Are they going to look more like an airline or a trucking company where you, you know, um, where the the capex expenses are it's just enormous? Are they going to be able to retain their current business model? It's an unknown. I asked Travis that question. You know, in an autonomous world, would you have to own your own fleet? He said not necessarily, but it's not yet worked out, and so it raises really interesting questions of even in the best case scenario, could the margin profile of this business look very different than some people first anticipated when they invested? Alexandra Switch, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. So, will Uber manage to stay above the fray and dominate a driverless world? Let us know your thoughts. Tweet us at Economist Radio or email us at radio at economist.com. Finally, we move on to introverts in the workplace. Why are companies looking to harness their unassuming power? Emma Duncan, our resident extrovert and editor of our sister magazine, 1843, interviewed Schumpeter columnist Adrian Woolridge about engaging the quiet types. Adrian, why would anyone want to employ an introvert? I mean, surely companies depend on people who like kind of getting out there and selling stuff and networking and people like me. uh, I am a self-proclaimed extrovert and I think I'm a great person for a company to employ. Well, partly because introverts are about half the population. I think to cut yourself off from the talents of half the population is quite a considerable thing to do. Secondly, because introverts, I think, have certain qualities which are important and valuable, that they tend to be more reflective. They tend to be quite good at celebration, thinking in the long term. They're less impulsive. And finally, because introverts can actually train themselves to do the sort of things that extroverts do, which is to get out there, to motivate people, to deal with people in in a social setting. They're not incapable of doing it. They just find it a bit more difficult and they have to sort of recharge themselves. Okay, but you're sort of saying that, you know, you might as well employ introverts just because there are a lot of them out there, rather than that introverts are particularly good employees. Do you think that there are some sectors that they would be particularly good in? Yeah, certainly. I think that the business world has been, you know, in many ways dominated by extrovert qualities, uh, the qualities of motivating people, of selling things. That, that was the, what, what dominated business in many ways from the early part of the 20th century right the way through the 20th century. But increasingly, competitive advantage depends on the ability 
to think, to come up with new ideas, to come up with disruptive business models. And that tends to be something that actually introverts have an advantage in. Many of the most important business people of the modern world are actually introverts, Bill Gates being an obvious example, Zuckerberg being another example. So I think we may actually be moving from a world in which your qualities, the qualities of the extrovert, are becoming a little bit passe, and the qualities of the introvert are becoming absolutely cutting edge. Okay, thanks. I'll go back into my shell. That was Emma Duncan speaking to Adrian Woolrich. Well, we too are going to harness the power of quiet, because that's all for this episode of Money Talks. To read our Schumpeter column on introverts at work, pick up the upcoming issue of The Economist, or visit our website at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.